This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. The credits roll, the camera pans, and in the mist our hero stands. He starts to speak, then folds his hands in prayer. What's my line? There's nothing left to say this time. And what would you say to a bad guy who's not there? In terms of Roman numerals, he's Ivy League with Roman Polanski. He'd win an Oscar every time if he was only given the chance. Hi, and welcome to episode 77 of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is our last episode of the semester. Our episode is called Great Book, Terrible Movie. And as, as there is no decimal place, you know that all three of us are back together. And that means Yay. David Grubbs is back from his paternity Yay. leave. How's it going, David? Pretty well. How are you, sir? I'm fine. I'm getting much more sleep than you are, I suspect. That's ah, overrated. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that strange laugh you hear is uh, Nathan Gilmore, <laughs> who is an assistant professor of English at Emanuel College in Franklin Springs, Georgia. <laughs> I'm so, you know, our, our listeners don't realize well, what I'm referring to. We got a uh, iTunes review that said we laugh strangely sometimes. Yes, mm. yes, and I've, I've got to think that's me. Oh, I was thinking it was me. I, I don't know. Sometimes I, you know, cackle like a happy chicken. Maybe, maybe it meant all three of us. There you Could go. Be. I mean, he did say we. Or she. We don't know. Right. Although the screen name is Guy with Arms, so. That, oh. that, 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 pretty much, uh, that pretty much sums it up, doesn't it? <laughs> Cl- closes is, that debate. Is, is, is that some kind of common man's translation of the first line of the Iliad? Oh, my God. Aeneid. Aeneid. Sorry, Aeneid. I can't believe I flubbed that joke. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, all right. that's all right. I, hey, I've I, been gone for a while. Whatever. Well, no, it's, 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 it's one of those things I knew someone would write in if we didn't correct it immediately. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, sorry. Iliad is wrath. Right. And Aeneid is arms. Arms and the guy. <laughs> guy with arms. There you go. <laughs> See now I'm trying not to laugh so that I won't laugh strangely. Yeah, there you go. So, so this this will be a remarkably laugh-free episode of the podcast. Do we have any uh, listener feedback since last time? Other than that iTunes review, not that I can think of. I think we got an email from a guy who uh, you, you'll recall last week we, uh, we we talked about his indecipherable. Oh no, it was Glenn. His Glenn. That's right. That's right. His indecipherable. Uh, Remarks about uh, the brothers, you know, the Dostoevsky novel that I apparently can't pronounce. So now I'm I'm, I'm sensitive about that as well. Karamozov. So, so, so you didn't roll it. I did a little bit. Okay. You've, it was understated. Have you been practicing? It was a subtle roll. Yeah, anyway, yeah. It's in the shower. He said. He says you were a bit bewildered by the meaning of my impersonal opinion. Anything from me should be highly suspected of farcicality. I was bitten by a rabid jackalope and have been terminally jocular ever since. I'm not sure jackalopes are real things, though. 
I, that might be part of his levity, Michael. I see. I get it now. <laughs> <laughs> there's that. There's that strange laugh. Yeah. No. I. Yeah. I love this guy. I'm a fan. Ah. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, let's get into our topic. Our. Uh, you know, at the end of the semester, we tend to do topics we don't have to think about too much because. We're busy thinking about all manner of other things. Uh, so, are we ever? <laughs> so as I said, today's topic is great book, terrible movie. And this is where we're going to talk about movie adaptations of, you know, books we like. Sometimes even classic books. That, and the movie adaptation did not turn out so well. Now this is a subject we have hinted at before. I'm sure we're going to get back to the Zemeckis Beowulf momentarily. <laughs> Uh, How could we not? <laughs> but uh, it, it seemed like a good enough full topic to me, so let's just dive right in. Uh, let's start with some Mystery Science Theater 3000-style trash talk. <laughs> what are the worst book-to-movie adaptations you've ever seen, and what is it that makes them so bad? Let's start with you, David. Oh, I am wrestling. I am wrestling with my inner urge to just go ahead and get Beowulf out of the way. Um... Just do you it. You know what? Lead I just lost. I lost. Um, <laughs> I lost my wrestling match. Our, list, uh, our long-time listeners have been waiting for you to uh, lay into Beowulf. Anyway, okay. So. All right. The Beowulf book-to-movie adaptation. Oh, lordy. Where do, where do you even begin with this thing? Um, well, I know, where, I know where I'm going to begin. I'm going to begin with Beowulf, who... Um, you know, un- un- unlike the the Clint Eastwood Man with No Name series, uh, the Beowulf movie is very intent that you know Beowulf's name because he wanders around yelling at it, everyone. <laughs> um, you know, never has a protagonist been so concerned that other people know his name. Um, in fact, it, it it almost becomes you know kind of one of those sort of farcical "What's my name?" raps from the nineties. <laughs> um. Oh lordy, let's see. Grendel, who looks like a giant abortion, and apparently, and is driven to kill because he has a really, really sensitive ear. <laughs> um. Wait, is that is that uh, is that true? He kill he kills them because they're talking too loudly. Yeah, 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 yeah. Whenever people make noise, Zemeckis helpfully focuses in on poor, poor Grendel's throbbing eardrum. Just to let you know how much other people's screams are like daggers into his head, and so he, he, you know, he, he grimaces in pain, and then you know, rips screaming women in half. You know what though? I, right. can, I can relate to that because my neighbors play their bass really loud. <laughs> right. So he's, he's basically this cross between Gollum and the Incredible Hulk. <laughs> I mean, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, if you if you then flay him. It's 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 really quite gross, and and it's not the grossness that I have a problem with. It's um, you know, uh, yeah. Gr- Grindel doesn't in in the book. Grindel doesn't kill people because his ears hurt. Right. He's hungry, and he doesn't like Danes. Right, and he's envious in that g- yeah. good medieval sense. He hears people celebrating, and he hates the fact that they are happy. Yes. Yeah, he's not the old guy next door. You kids with your loud rock music. <laughs> All right. <laughs> you know, he's not going to turn the hose on him or something. You know, it's, <laughs> this is anyway. Right. Um, well, and, you know, Grind- Grindel's, you know, hot mom is, 
You know that that's that is an an oft mocked feature of this film. Uh, Angel Golden Angelina Jolie with her you know her built-in you know, heels on her feet is I've but the worst <laughs> thing though. I mean, all all of those things are absurd. You know, all of it is absurd. But to my mind, this is the worst book to movie adaptation because what it kills is what is the heart of the story, which is Beowulf himself being a hero. Hmm. All right. They're constantly, constantly, constantly rubbing in your face this whole hero monster equivalence thing. All right. Through much of the Grendel fight, yes, Grendel is trying to get out. That's in the poem. All right. But in the poem doesn't include Beowulf continually yelling at him, screaming at him, taunting him, calling himself, you know, the, I don't know, like the terror that lurks in the darkness and stuff. Basically, you know, this, this, you know, you know, just before Beowulf slams Grendel's arm in the door, he's yelling all of these, you know, terrible, terrible epithets for himself. You know, Beowulf is claiming to be the big bad monster while Grendel whimpers at him. Deep. Yeah. And then, you know, you go down to Grendel's mommy and Grendel's mommy is like, yes, I know that you're like, you know, you're, 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 you know, you're a monster too, basically. Right. And you just want to be famous. You just want to be a hero. One day, everybody's going to say your name because you keep saying it. How much, how much does that adaptation draw on the uh, John Gardner novel, Grendel? David, I don't think very much. Right. I mean, the, the idea that Beowulf is the monster—that's certainly something that Gardner plays with. Yeah, it's but something it that Gardner more plays with. But, well, he does it by telling by by doing the story from the monster's point from from Grendel's point of view. Right. 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 And this is not Grendel's point of view. All right. This the, the, this. Is I, I guess I guess the closest thing I can say is that Zemeckis's Beowulf's relationship to the poem Beowulf is like that of the Da Vinci Code to the Four Gospels, <laughs> or that terrible, terrible conspiracy loose change film to the events of 9/11. It's it's a it's basically a conspiracy retelling that completely inverts and undercuts, you know. The, you know, the actual thing, uh-huh. I, and I don't have a problem with that. I just it'd just be really great if somebody would actually make Beowulf before they start subverting it. That's well, fair enough, and, and I'll say competently, right? Well, yeah, and and that's what I was about to say is that I you know I have a rosier view of radical appropriations than David does. Yeah. Uh, you know, so I mean, I, I actually was fascinated with the plot line uh, in which, you know, Grendel and the dragon uh, are not, they don't come into the world because of the sins of Cain, but they come into the world because of the sins of Hrothgar and Beowulf. I mean, I thought that was an interesting twist. What I can't abide is, first of all, like David said, the constant, I am Beowulf, uh, that got old incredibly quickly. And then the other thing is, I mean, if you wanted to go that direction, you should make this a tragic story. Uh, but yeah. instead, before the fight with Grendel, 
uh, Beowulf, for reasons entirely unexplained, decides he has to get naked. And then you have this long <laughs> Austin Power scene where he struts across yep. the screen, and whenever his lower body would come onto camera, someone carries a spear out in front of him, protruding, you know, in perspective on the screen where unmentionable parts would be protruding on the screen. Yep. And I mean, I you know... That part, I mean, if you wanted to make this a tragedy in which, you know, your basic artistic thesis is that the sins of the father are visited on the son, great. I, you know, I, I think I could dig that retelling of Beowulf. It wouldn't be the medieval poem, not by any means, but it would be interesting. But instead, you've got this goofy Austin Powers crap. Uh, and then beyond that, you've got, um, oh, shoot, and I've just lost the character's name. Uh, uh, you've got... Um, Unferth, there we go. Yes, you got Unferth who becomes Thank a you. Christian priest, and I, you know, that is beyond a head scratcher. That is a an entirely gratuitous and stupid addition. A wall banger. Yeah, yeah. I mean that. Well, this this ridiculous little. I don't know this ridiculous. I don't know. It's 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 like a Richard Dawkins moment. Yeah, yeah. You know. You know, oh, and by the way, Christians, ha, 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 they're going to get eaten by dragons. Ha. Yeah, exactly. I, why? 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 <laughs> yeah, but, you know, but, and all of, all of that, and Beowulf wasn't, it wasn't packaged as, this isn't the Beowulf you know. Right, right. It wasn't packaged as, this is the untold story. This isn't, this isn't wicked Okay. Yeah. <laughs> All right. It's not. It's not advertised as, you know, a subversion. As as a, as a subversion. All right. And again, you know, I, you know, I have more of a problem with subversions than Nathan does. Right. But, I kind of dig them, but. <laughs> but I, I I can I can see a place for them, but they need to be labeled as such, and they really shouldn't be shown in high school in lieu of reading the real thing. Oh, amen to that, brother. Amen. Wait, is, is that? Do you think that's happening? preaching? People are people are showing this movie in class instead of having. People yeah, I've, I've I've had students tell me that they that they watched it in high school because it was easier. I, th uh. I, I think I've told the story before about how my eleventh grade American lit teacher, instead of having us read, followed the House of Usher, which is what like twenty pages. If that, yeah. Instead of having us read that, we watched the Vincent Price movie, which shares <laughs> shares with the story a title and a few a few basic plot details, but is on the whole completely different. Right. <laughs> the fact that the soundtrack was done by Usher doesn't help. <laughs> well, let's. Uh, I think it's your turn now, Nathan. Uh, what, what, yes. what movie? What movie would you? Suggest. Well, I'm going to go the opposite direction from David and take on a movie that is so obsessed with staying true to what it thinks the book is about that it becomes unwatchable, and that is Kenneth Branagh's version of Hamlet. Now, a little bit of backstory on this. What we know of as Hamlet is actually a history of texts. Uh, there were actually two plays, both written by Shakespeare, both called Hamlet. Uh, I think you mean both written by the Earl of Oxford. No, I don't. Uh, both of which were staged in the early 17th century. Uh, you know, Shakespeare scholars refer to them as Hamlet A and Hamlet B. All right. Uh, Hamlet B is significantly longer. It's got most of the speeches that we think of as Hamlet speeches. Uh, Hamlet A is more of a Christian apocalyptic tale. 
Hamlet B is more of a philosophical musing. All right, that's that. That's the big picture version. Listeners, if we've got any Shakespeareans out there, feel free to write in and tell me how I've mangled that. Now, in the 19th century, uh, unlike the science of biblical criticism, which says let's find what was most likely original and cut away the rest of it, the science of Shakespeare editing decides what we're going to do is take Hamlet A and Hamlet B and ram them together into Uber Hamlet, uh, which becomes this massive, unwieldy play, uh, which is much longer than, I think, all the rest of Shakespeare's plays, although I'm sure there's an an exception to that. Again, readers, listeners, if you want to write in, feel free to. And that is, uh, unfortunately, what often gets printed as Hamlet. It's this play that never actually existed in the 17th century, uh, but which has this massive, massive text. Well, Branagh decides, I'm going to film the entire Super Hamlet. Now, most directors with any sense at all will cut significant hunks of Hamlet so that you can actually stage it in under three hours. Uh, Branagh, oh no, he's going to film... (laughs) All five hours of it. Oh, goodness gracious. Yeah, and I and I should let uh, listeners know that I own this not on DVD but on VHS, so you actually have to change the tape midway through this bad boy because it won't fit on one VHS tape. Um, <laughs> Branagh plays Hamlet, is that right? Oh, of course Branagh plays Hamlet. Isn't he about <laughs> 20 years too old to play Hamlet? <laughs> yes, he is. <laughs> but to be fair, so are most people who play Hamlet. Yeah. Uh, all right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I could I could go off on that one too, but I won't this episode. Uh, but at any rate, so I mean, what happens is that, uh, you know, I mean, it's all there, the entire Super Hamlet. But by the end of the thing, I mean, you just want the bloodbath to happen so that the dang thing will end. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, uh, there's not really any performances that are standouts for being very, very bad performances. And certainly you can find every line of the movie somewhere in one of the texts of Hamlet. It's just that, you know, most people have enough good sense to edit the dang thing. Branagh does not. And that's all I got to say about that. I uh, fortunately have not seen that. My my wife, as, as our listeners probably know, is a, is a Shakespearean and she... Right. She, she's part. always the one I'm terrified of when I try to talk about Renaissance things because she actually knows the Renaissance. I just dabble. She's actually also, <laughs> I should say, angry that we did not invite her to be part of this episode. Oh, man. So, so okay. now, now she's okay. really going to be gunning for you, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure she blames it on me. Anyway, I've, I've always heard that version is insufferable, but she hates Branagh, so I'm poisoned against him from the beginning. Well, I'm not a big fan of Branagh. I like his version of Othello. Um... But, I mean, this movie is just unwatchable. I watched it once just to say that I've watched it. And, like I said, five hours later, I was glad that I never have to watch it again. Five hours is too long for a movie. Oh, you're, you're, you're preaching truth, man. You're preaching truth. Oh, I don't know. <laughs> you, you don't know, David? You, you, you don't mind a five-hour I mean, the, the, movie? There the, are movies I would watch five hours of. Die Hard? No, you couldn't prolong Die Hard. <laughs> Anything to add about Branagh's Hamlet, David? Have you seen it? No, no, no. no. That, that's that's actually that's actually one I've 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 been interested in seeing because I've seen production stills and they look gorgeous. Oh yeah, visually it's great. It's just there's five hours of it. 
I'm pretty sh- do, do you think he's ever going to get around to editing like the good parts version? I I don't know. I I wish he had before he ever put that thing out, honestly. As as Groucho Mark said, I like my cigar too, but sometimes I take it out of my mouth. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so so what do you got, Michael? What's your awful movie? Well, I'm going to do two at once because they came out the Uh-oh. same year and Uh-oh. they have the same problem. Okay. I uh, they, they both came out in the summer of 2004, I believe, and I went to see them because I had a friend who was into epics, so he took me to see all the epics. And I am talking about Troy, on the one hand, which is an adaptation of the Iliad, and mm-hmm. Arthur, on the other, which is an adaptation, of course, of the King Arthur stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> now, the, the biggest problem with both of these is that instead of adapting the source material relatively faithfully, and I understand there's many ways to do Arthur, but uh, instead of adapting it relatively faithfully, they, they decide they want to demythologize the original stories. And so oh, there, there are no gods in Troy, and there are, you know, King Arthur is just kind of a, uh, oh, what would you call him? A, some sort of tribal chieftain. Who, uh, who, you know, he's, he, you know, there's no sword in the stone. There, there's nothing particularly noble. There's nothing particularly epic. It's just, it, it's just a story. It, it's kind of what uh, Ridley Scott did with the most recent version of Robin Hood. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other no, problem, no killer rabbit. No, no killer rabbit. And the the other the other problem is uh, is is the tone of these movies, especially Troy. Uh, Troy lacks any sense of its own ridiculousness so it's not any kind of campy fun which you you know you could you could you could do an adaptation of the Iliad that you made into into you know something kind of goofy it doesn't mm-hmm. do that but it's also not the right kind of serious and so it's just relentlessly self-serious in in a way that only a hollywood adaptation of an ancient epic could possibly be and, uh, and likewise, Arthur is so depressing and gloomy and ugly that it's almost unwatchable. <laughs> have have either of you seen either of those movies? You must have. Seen I have. Them. I, I have not seen either of them. So, David, you Lucky can you. comment on this one. I have seen both. Am I misrepresenting them? No, uh, though I do have a little, a little more, uh, a little more info on the Arthur movie. But let's, 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 you know. Let's bash Troy a little more. <laughs> For, well, first of all, Brad Pitt is not a terrible uh, choice to play Achilles. I can imagine oh, an no. adaptation of the Iliad where he plays Achilles, and it's it's very good. This seems to be a recurring theme. They could have done this so well. L- likewise, Sean Bean is a great pick to play Odysseus. Except, yeah, you know, he is. Again, they do it completely wrong. They get the tone of Odysseus all wrong. Yeah. And Eric Bana's Hector, you know... I, I thought you know I thought he did a he did a pretty good job of being a Hector, and I could totally see Orlando Bloom as a Paris. You want to hit him? Well, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 one of the few movies where Orlando Bloom's anti charisma could possibly work for him. But the script is so terrible, and the direction's even worse. And no matter how good the cast is, I mean, they're, they're, they, there's no way they could have rescued that movie from itself. Right. Uh, you know, I, and this is this is this is a rant that you know we, we've we we we've harked back to Troy before, but I'm just going to invoke again. You talk about them, you know, shutting the gods out. They're going to demythologize. You know, fair enough. But there are aspects of you know there are aspects of that story that don't make sense if you just take the gods out, but leave the actions as they are. Right. 
so right. you know so, some 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 kind of acknowledgement you know that you know that, that a good a good bit of that story just seems irrational when you take those elements out mm-hmm. would you know that 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 would have been helpful also, who wants a demythologized version of the Iliad or a demythologized version of the King Arthur stories? I, I, I just right, can't. I just right. can't imagine there's that much of an audience who, who's even. I mean, the fun part of both of those stories is the mythology. Well, there was an audience for that, but they lived in like you know the 1870s in Germany. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. I, I mean, the the, the On demythology. On the other hand, Schliemann mm-hmm. gave it two thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Good effort, guys. Good effort. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, also the you know, let's let's layer on some additional, just completely ludicrous notions. And, and th- this this bugs me. I'm gonna blame I'm gonna blame Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon for this. <laughs> Here we go. <laughs> um, but it's 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 the I don't know. I'm, I'll have to coin a phrase: the kung fuification of action films. Are you yeah. suggesting that yeah. Bronze Age fighting wasn't kung fu? Uh, I think I'm going to do a little bit more and suggest it. <laughs> All right. If you tried to do, you know, a good three quarters of the stuff that they do with their weapons in that film, um, yeah, I'm sorry, but bronze weapons would break or you know, fold. You know the, the 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 reason why the Bronze Age was superseded by the Iron Age is because bronze is like barely better than stone, but not a whole heck of a lot. Right? Mm-hmm. It it you know it doesn't hold a great edge, and it's not really terribly resilient, which is why shields exist. Right? <laughs> you don't parry with your bronze sword; <laughs> it can't take it. Right. Right. You know. And you know the leaping around and all that kind of stuff. I just it's, eh, no, 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 no. <laughs> anyway, and, and, and see that's not something I would have thought of. So it's good to have an ancient weapon specialist here. Well, I wouldn't say specialist. I'd just say, you know, I've read up about it and I've watched some History Channel. Right. Well, you and know. also, I mean, just aesthetically, I mean, there's something about. I mean, this. Listen carefully, listeners, because this is the one good thing I will ever say about the movie Three Hundred. <laughs> is that what they got right is that the signature maneuver in ancient warfare is to stand one's ground. It is yes. to stay planted and to withstand the charge. Yep, the phalanx. Yes. Yeah. Though you know. It it is it is appropriate in Troy that they have an inordinate number of mono and mono fights, right? Well, that's yeah, true. that's true, but they should be on yeah. the ground when they do so. Yes, they they should not be <laughs> flying around on wires. <laughs> Tro- Troy you know. is also one of the first movies I can remember that had the giant CGI crowds of warriors, and even at the time, I was like, "That is a really crappy effect." <laughs> <laughs> Now, did that come out after the Pete Jackson Lord of the Rings? Yes, it did. I mean, the Lord of the Rings, as you'll remember, set off this uh, fad for these epics based on um, ancient right. books. Giant battles, yeah, yeah, with swords, yeah. <laughs> well, in spite of the fact that 
that makes no sense in Troy. I'm, I'm I'm sorry, but even if you look at the Iliad, it's not actually a very very big war. Right. It seems right, like there's about right. 85 people on each side. <laughs> I mean, they, he names them all for crying out loud. Right, right. They all have names and backstories. They're not, they're not right. CGI crowds to be disposed of. Right. Now, now Mort D'Artur, they have, you know, I think, armies that are inflated to silliness. You know, when after the battle with Mordred, you know, Mallory says, and 80,000 did fall on that field. And I'm like, no, they didn't. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, that's, that's just the, you know, the medieval. Oh, absolutely. But what I'm saying historians is. Desire to, you know, swank his battle with, by oh, adding zeros. Absolutely. That is very medieval. It's not Homeric. <laughs> Swanking the battle needs to be the title of your first book, David. <laughs> Swanking the battle. How medieval writers shifted the decimal point. I, 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 I would, I would buy that book. <laughs> well, th- there's a, there's another book that I do want to point to, and I think I, I think you know again I think this this might be something we referenced before, but you know you you loathe the odious Arthur movie, Michael, and oh, rightly so. It is so bad. It is, it is, it is odious, um, but it's not it's not entirely unprecedented. Um, the there's a book by C. Scott Littleton, who is. Uh, I think a fairly decently respected scholar entitled from Scythia to, to Camelot, a radical reassessment of the legends of King Arthur, the Knights of the round table and the Holy grail in which he argues that there was a, were a bunch of, you know, Roman conscripts from the Russian steppes that got shifted over to Britain and that he, he, you know, these are cavalry fighters, particularly heavy cavalry. And and the the theory propounded in this book is that these Eastern European heavy cavalry um, were one of the groups that was uh, kind of settled in Britain and left behind when the official Roman armies left, so that you know that these these this is one of the home guard group that the Britons would have turned to for aid when you know various kinds of Picts and Scots and so forth started right. raiding. Basically, it's 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 his attempt to argue that yes, there actually were knights in Britain that you know that would that could have inspired something like what later became the King Arthur stories, and that you know there there's there's more to it than that. And I and I know that that book that this particular book and this particular theory was what inspired the Arthur movie. Mm-hmm. The problem is that as soon as it went into production, the actual character of Roman Britain was 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 lost and you're like okay we have to represent Britons okay we're going to dress them all in buckskin and paint their faces blue <laughs> all right and and no Britain's been wearing no Britain ran around naked with blue paint on since the Gallic wars all right i mean that that was like 500 years before right right they, they you know, also they I, also had to shoehorn in the feminism, right? They had to they had to oh, make like Karen that, Knightley yeah. the hero. Yes, uh, and you know, yes. I'm all I'm now all did, for strong now women, did, but now did they give Arthur an Eastern European accent? That would be the greatest. Well, see that in 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 the in the theory, the officer that leads these guys is not himself Eastern European. He is oh, okay, himself. Okay, and see, I'm a, imagining Roma. Let us go do battle. Yeah. Yeah, that that would have been that would have been very fun. Yes, 
You must find the Holy Grail. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Come, comrades. Let us make a round table. <laughs> that would have been sweet. We, we are evolving um, quickly, gentlemen. Well, it, well, but that's that's the other thing too is that the, the it's, not only did they become you know just just ludicrously anachronistic. You know, Britons, they were ludicrously anachronistic Romans. That's like they learned about Romans by watching like Ben Hur or something. You're suggesting Ben Hur is not an accurate representation of ancient Rome? It's a pretty sweet chariot fight. I'll give it that. And the ship battle? Oh, it's awesome. I had so many kind of I, I, I had so many Roman galley dreams as a child. I just thought that was the coolest way to have a fight at sea. Speaking of my terrible high school experience, we spent a week in my Latin class watching Ben Hur for some reason. Nice. Awesome. Now, now David, I'm, I'm thinking that in, in some sick, twisted way, this movie actually sounds fairly true to Mallory, where you've got you know, a high Middle Ages King Arthur going down and conquering a Ciceronian Rome and coming back <laughs> to find the 5th century. <laughs> uh, yeah, have, not, not, not really. I mean, the, 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 that, that's, that's the problem is because they, because the, again, because they advertised it as Arthur. Yeah. And, right. and left out. You know, I, I don't think that C. Scott Littleton got a whole lot of references, right? Right. In the in the trailers, in the uh, advertisements, um, the the narrative of the of of the story has nothing to do with any of the actual Arthur stories, with the exception of the fact that a bunch of Anglo-Saxons are invading. Oh, who by the way are Nazis? Yeah. Uh, oh heavens. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh no, they're they're like actually Nazis. They're like. They're like, don't breed with the Britons. They're of inferior racial stock. I'm like, really? <laughs> really? I, I, but the, I mean, the biggest problem is, it is that it is a joyless, dour movie. Yes. And, and there was yeah, no, I was gonna say, was no this, reason This sounds like a Monty Python skit. So I <laughs> yeah, I think, they, I think the word that they would have used, Michael, was gritty. Right. But see, th this is what happened. <laughs> Lord of the Rings came out and it was such a phenomenon that everybody said, we need to make an epic, uh, a movie out of every epic there ever was. And so, and so they, they, they did all these movies and they missed that one of the things that made the Lord of the Rings movies work. And you know, I don't like the novels and I like the films okay, at least. But one of the things that make those films work is they are a great deal of fun. There is joy in them. Yeah, I, I I don't know what it is. What 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 kept the producers and director of Arthur from recognizing that, and, and what made them decide that what the American public really wanted was two and a half hours of a joyless, demythologized King Arthur. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's nothing oh, demythologized about the Lord of the Rings movies for crying out loud. No. Yeah. I mean, well, if you want to watch a good adaptation of well, a, a, a good adaptation of actual medieval Arthur material. Sword in the Stone. Particularly, Mallory. <laughs> um, uh, Holy Grail. Mind Python and Holy Grail. Those, those guys actually know their medieval lit. So you're saying that oh. Monty Python and the Holy Grail is closer to the original story than the demythologized Arthur? Yes. I'll stand by it. 
These guys know they're medieval lit. Right. They're actually having fun with the forms of medieval poetry. Yeah. And particular episodes from particular epics. Right, right. You guys know that stuff better than I do, so I can't argue with you. No, I mean, yeah. what what, what Grubsy <laughs> says here is true. Yeah. Yeah. They, 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 they need more props than they get. Mm-hmm. Though Excalibur was also pretty sweet, but it was it was definitely well, particularly when you got into the Holy Grail stuff, it was you know you, you were you, you were definitely kind of ranging over into Golden Bow territory. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Well, let's move <clears> on. <throat> uh, this is round two of the same discussion. David, give us another terrible movie based on a great book. Uh see, I, I've always I've 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 always been. I've always been well. First, I, w- I was the kid who really wanted to see the movie that was based on the book that he loved, because uh, he wanted to see it in the movie. And then too many of them broke my heart, and so for years I shunned <laughs> books based on movie because I d- movies just because I didn't I didn't want to be disappointed. Um, I still remember my disappointment as a child uh, with Disney's Treasure Island. Mm. Treasure Treasure Island was always one of my favorite films, or sorry, books. Um, and Disney's Treasure Island, I watched it as a kid, and I picked it apart. I'm like, ah, I'm not. Now, in retrospect, I realize that it was actually a pretty good one. What is terrible is like just about every other thing that's been made out of Treasure Island since. <laughs> um, and I'm going to include the Muppet Treasure Island in this. Um, Muppet Treasure Island is way more happy than the actual book Treasure Island is. Treasure Island, yeah, it's grim. It is grim and cheerless, um, and that's part of what I loved. But you know, there are there are no wacky songs. In there. <laughs> um, but then the Muppets are not. They, they aren't claiming to be doing anything other than a Muppet movie. So right, you know, right. I, I, can't, I can't really hate that. Um, what I can hate is the fact that someone took it upon themselves to make a sequel to Disney's Treasure Island because the Long John Silver character uh, seemed like he really needed another movie. Right. He was getting bored running fish restaurants in the Midwest. He, yes. Oh, so, <laughs> yeah. A- any, anyway. Um, oh, Lordy. I mean, you, you, you suggested Robin Hood. Uh, Michael, I haven't. I didn't watch the Robin Hood movie. I'm not. I'm not gonna lie. I watched the trailer, saw enough anachronisms in the trailer that I wanted to weep. Well, and again, it's it's another example of a, a quote unquote demythologized version of this old story that misses everything everybody actually likes about the story. Yeah, yeah. True enough. I mean, is, is there anybody who would not prefer like an Errol Flynn, Robin Hood to the uh, that that joyless gray Ridley Scott Robin Hood? I mean, is there anybody on the planet who genuinely wouldn't prefer the Errol Flynn? <laughs> uh, maybe someone who doesn't know it exists. Yeah. In which case, I have such good news for them. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, I mean, if you've seen the Disney one, it's basically Errol, the Errol Flynn one, isn't it? Right, right. And mm. see, I, I I don't even like Kevin Costner's Robin Hood, so 
I, you know, I'm, I'm definitely in the Errol Flynn camp. And I, I, I also, David, never saw Russell Crowe's Robin Hood. I'd forgotten all about the, uh, the you know what, the, uh, the, uh, the Costner Robin Hood works because of uh, Alan Rickman committing to, to chewing the scenery as the Sheriff of Nottingham. Oh, I, I, okay, okay, you got me there. Alan Rickman is pretty wonderful in that movie. While, yeah. while the rest of that movie is a big turd <laughs> wrapped in a wet blanket. Alan right. Rickman. Alan Rickman is having a good time, and so the movie is right. Kind of fun. Right. So it's kind of like Christopher Reeve's yeah. Superman. I mean, Gene Hackman is the one thing you watch those for. Yeah. Because he is having such fun being Lex Luthor. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, and the the line about using a spoon because it hurts more. Yeah. I mean, that 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 <laughs> stuck around in the war, you know. <laughs> yeah, that that well, stuck around then, in the lore of my know, youth group for a long time. Mor- Morgan Free- Freeman being more magical than than just about any such character on screen that I can think of. <laughs> well, he's just being Morgan Freeman. And you're like, oh, it's Morgan. Fre-. That was my introduction to Morgan Freeman, by the way. Okay, okay. And I I, I remember leaving the movie thinking, wow. He was so cool. Now, here's the thing. I, I think Morgan Freeman is a genuinely good actor. I mean, you know, I mean... And uh, a genuinely uh, terrible person. Oh, is he really? See, I didn't know that. I believe but... he's about to marry his step-granddaughter. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. Awkward. But, he, but the thing is, he gets cast in so many bad roles that yeah. the very few good ones that he's actually been cast in get overshadowed <laughs> yes you also though i have to i have to admit i saw robin hood when i was nine years old and so i still think it's kind of <laughs> awesome yeah but yeah more more i think most of morgan freeman's roles he's he's sort of playing the I, I don't know <laughs> well, <laughs> okay well, what, so what, michael just said it <laughs> well what I, what I was going to say was 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 kind of the sort of the the Hollywood sort of the Hollywood liberals idea of if a black person was their spirit guide. Right. right. That's what, that's what that phrase refers to David. Yeah. It, it's well, I know, such a stereotype that <laughs> I, 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 well, I wanted to, I wanted to find some way to like say that in a fresh way. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, shoot. And you All guys right. see, Hmm? Go ahead. Go ahead. Either you guys see the uh, the uh, that the Dracula movie with Keanu. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. Are you talking about Bram Stoker's Dracula? Yeah. Well, no. I'm not. I'm not going to claim that it was Bram Stoker's, uh, no, even if no. that wasn't. I believe that's the title of the movie. Bram Stoker's Yeah, that is Dracula. the title of the movie. It's the uh, it's Francis Ford Coppola. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let, let that sink in for a minute, by the way. That, that yeah, Francis I know. Ford I know. Coppola directed that movie. That makes me so sad. <laughs> Gary Oldman is Dracula, is that right? I believe that's yeah. right, yeah. I saw it when I was a kid and remember thinking it was boring. <laughs> For, I, I don't know. I, that, and Anthony, which, Anthony Hopkins as Van Helsing. Oh, my God. That, could somebody Speaking, speaking of another him? actor who's got so many bad roles on his list that yeah. his good ones get overshadowed. Yeah, someone needed to tell him that that accent was ludicrous and to stop. <laughs> Your accent to stop is bad. And you should feel bad. <laughs> well, I mean, after Peter Cushing had played Van Helsing for years in 
hammer film after hammer film after hammer film. Okay. Mm-hmm. Nobody remembered that Van Helsing was supposed to be Dutch <laughs> and no one cared. You know, it's you like Anthony Hopkins is like based on the name Van Helsing. Well, but who cares really? You know, I mean, uh, you know, d- d- is, does Van Halen sing with a ridiculous Dutch accent? <laughs> well, he, he might, if he sang, Van Halen is a guitar player. Sorry, I'm just I'm just saying. I'm just saying ridiculous Dutch accents, but yeah, it was, it was it, yeah it was like Anthony Hopkins was on a one man mission to remind us of the ethnicity of of Abraham Van Helsing in in the most ludicrous you know if, if there were minstrel shows of Dutch people. That's okay. what they would sound like. Okay, they juggle Lister. tulips. <laughs> the, the the goofy laughter. I couldn't help that one. <laughs> quite, quite possibly. Quite possibly. <laughs> All right. No, it's worth pro- pointing out though. Dracula uh-huh. is by no means a great book. No, no, it isn't. But yeah, it is. It, it, it <laughs> is a it is a tradition in cinema that right. mm-hmm. that there, movie. There have been many great Dracula movies. Oh, absolutely, yeah. and that movie just kind of. I don't know why it decided that all of them were too good that it couldn't follow in their tradition. <laughs> but it decided, you know, let's make a really, really awful version of Dracula just which to remind neither, people how good the old ones are. Which is neither, again, scary nor, nor fun, right? I right, mean, right. Those are the two routes you can take with, with vampire movies. And Francis Ford Coppola, God help him, chose neither. <laughs> right. He chose sort of... Sorted? Well, no, no, no. I, I sort of sort. Yeah, self-serious is not a bad way to think about it. Well, since we're going fast and loose, and since David just butted in there and got his third one in. <laughs> oh, sorry. No, that's all right. That's all right. It's okay. I, only I have one more. I, I'm, I'm going to get my second one in here, and then you know we can go on to whatever. But uh, I, I do have to say that when Carl Sagan's novel Contact got made into a movie. It actually isn't a bad movie. It's one that I have I have commended in the past. I think it's a well-made movie, but it's definitely one of those that is bittersweet because it loses some of the hard-edged atheist polemic of the novel. Uh, and I, you know, I know exactly why they did that uh, because they wanted to sell tickets. And, <laughs> you know, well, and I mean, this these were the Clinton years. This is when everyone was, you know, at least making some effort to be nice to people who believe differently than they do. Uh, it was before Bill Maher could make religious. Uh, but, I mean, the the uh, Matthew McConaughey character in the film is actually a composite of two very, very unsympathetic characters in the novel. Uh, and neither one is the love interest for the main character. Uh, but what you've got in the novel is basically one who is a sort of Joel Osteen, fast talking, uh, former circus performer. He actually is a former circus performer. Joel Osteen, as far as I know, is not, uh, <laughs> I mean, who has these, you know, rallies where thousands of people throng to him and he preaches this sort of vague, uh, quasi Protestant self-help gospel. And then the other person is this, well, I mean, if you want to think of one of them as Joel Osteen, the other one is sort of <laughs> Jerry Falwell. All right, you know, I mean, he is the hardcore Southeastern uh, fire and brimstone preacher. And both of them, you know, oppose the main character throughout the novel. 
they are definitely unsympathetic characters and they are figures for everything that is wrong with religion in the mind of Carl Sagan and that is a lot. Uh, and <laughs> you know, of billions of things. <laughs> yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. But like I said, when you go to the film, I think it's an interesting change, but it was bittersweet for me because the hard polemic edge that made the novel so interesting gets completely left out of the film. So, I mean, it, it's one of those where, you know, I won't say that it is awful, 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 but it's definitely one where I was sad that it lost some of the things that made it interesting. So, Michael, do you have one more, and then we can go into your final run of questions? Do I ever. I would okay. like to talk about the 1995 Demi Moore adaptation of... Anybody? The Scarlet Letter. <laughs> the Scarlet Letter. Maybe this is oh, the yeah. worst adaptation in history. <laughs> um, I am not a stickler for plot, as we will see in a moment. I don't mind them changing certain things. But at some point, you change so many things, and you change the underlying th thematic concerns of the book so much that you can no longer call yourself an adaptation. And that is exactly what has happened in this terrible version of the Scarlet Letter, which for some reason stops being about guilt and innocence and starts being about Puritan Indian relationships. <laughs> <laughs> and, and also about thinly veiled excuses to get Demi more naked. Because that's the other thing that movie seems to be about. <laughs> that, that's uh, kind of what the 90s were all about, Michael. It's, it's true. I, I have never understood the, the thing about Demi Moore. I've never thought she was all that attractive. She's also one of the worst well, actresses in history. Well, honestly, yeah. I mean, if you go a decade forward, I never got Angelina Jolie, so I, you know, each decade has its own inexplicable naked woman. <laughs> <laughs> they, they seem to star in these terrible adaptations. Yeah. <laughs> um, that needs to be the title of your book. <laughs> the inexplicable naked yeah, woman. <laughs> yeah, I, I kind of like my job, actually. <laughs> um, the the sins of this movie are too many to list uh, among them we have Chillingsworth does not die out of the frustration of his inability to, to enact revenge he hangs himself out of guilt because he scalps a man and it gets blamed on the Indians who of course are uh, morally <laughs> upright in whom he loves and so he kills himself out of guilt for this they, uh, the Puritans are going for some reason to hang Hester Prynne so uh, our buddy Dimsdale offers himself instead of her and the Indians come and rescue him from the gallows and then they start a fight with the Puritans and uh, so, so I, I mean it's just it, it takes what is an enormously complex and interesting novel and turns it into a uh, politically correct puff piece for Native Americans. Mm -hmm. uh, who barely, as far as I remember, don't really appear in the original novel at all. I, don't, I mean, I don't remember. No, no, they're, they're mentioned as the dark people who live in the dark woods, but that's about it that I remember. But yeah, so the director, Roland Joffe, decides, you know, you know, you know what's missing from, from the Scarlet Letter <laughs> is... It, the Indians, and so they they become really the center of the of the movie adaptation. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, yeah. Go to ahead, be Steve. fair, he he covered he learned this story in high school the same semester that he learned Last of the Mohicans, and he kept getting their cliff notes crossed. <laughs> yeah, it really, I mean, it really is like that. Except even if it did, it would get the tone of Last of the Mohicans completely wrong. Because as you recall, there's only a couple of good Indians in that book. Mm -hmm. 
Hmm. Oh, it, it is. It is a shockingly bad movie. Like, like it's 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 staggeringly bad. It's it. How could anybody with half of a brain have made this movie? Robert Duvall is in this movie. Do you realize that Robert Duvall oh, plays Roger Chillingsworth? I will say this though, on on an entirely unrelated side note, Michael, that was one of the few times in grad school where I felt like a liberal was when I was the lone voice in Dr. Boudreaux's class saying that uh, Last of the Mohicans had some anti-Indian racism going. Really? Nobody nobody, re- nobody recognized no, that? No, no. Chris Boudreaux was making this impassioned plea for Fenimore Cooper as a voice for toleration. Except that Fenimore Cooper over and over and over again tells you that Natty Bumpo, even though he hangs out with Indians, is a man with no cross in his blood. Thus, you can trust him. I know this, Michael, and I tried to make that case, but it wasn't flying. That's crazy. Also, <laughs> yeah, Fenimore so. Cooper is dreadful. I think we can go ahead and say that. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's also true. <laughs> well, there's a Mark Twain essay to the effect, and, and we'll just let him have that say. Well, right. yeah, yeah. You can't top Mark Twain's essay on Cooper. The movie of Last of the Mohicans was actually pretty good. I've seen worse. The, yeah. the Day-Lewis one? Mm-hmm. As far as as far as uh, adaptations of classic American literature go, I could I can live with Last of the Mohicans. It, uh, but it's certainly much better than the Scarlet Letter, which is oh well that that's not hard to be though. Oh, and, <laughs> and I, I just looked it up. It's yet another terrible adaptation starring Gary Oldman. <laughs> oh. He's Dimsdale in that movie, which I'd forgot. Oh, that's great! That's great. What's Gary Oldman's deal? He's occasionally a good actor, isn't he? Well, I think yeah, he's always yeah. I think he's always a good actor. He's just not terribly choosy. Right. So Hopkins, Freeman, and Oldman <laughs> seem to be our usual suspects here. <laughs> Capable of greatness, yet never uh, never actually achieving it, or rarely actually achieving it. Right. And yeah. I'll leave it there. Alright, well let's move on to more general questions. We just have a few of these. Uh We've talked about a number of terrible adaptations. Uh, Nathan, can you look at them and, and talk about some broad trends and what makes them so terrible? What, what is it that makes adaptations so hard to do right? Is there a sense in which these great books are fundamentally unfilmable? Is it that the filmmakers uh, feel the need to dumb them down for the idiot masses? What is it? Why, why are these movies so hard to do right? Well, I'm going to play uh, Wittgenstein, and then I'm going to play the existentialist here. First of all, I will say that these films bear a family resemblance there is no universal rule that i can find uh that makes all of them uniformly bad like we've talked about some of them are bad because they abandon their responsibility to actually make a movie they try to do just a remake of the book some of them abandon their responsibility to label themselves as an entirely new story and they try to ride the coattails of the book's success uh, even though they're doing something entirely different. So the the family resemblance I see is sort of that lack of responsibility. Uh, so in other words, I mean, I, I, and as all three of us have said, you know, if they had run with the interesting departure that they made and really made their movie about that interesting departure, a lot of these movies could have been really interesting and really good. Uh, but as they stand, uh, because they are either trying to pass off something half-baked as the original book or because they are 
trying to just reproduce the details of the original book and therefore don't actually make a good movie at all, uh, all of them fall short. So, I mean, I would say, you know, as far as is it possible to do a good adaptation? Yes, it is. But the emphasis has to be on the adaptation. Uh, it has to be, you know, the responsibility of the filmmakers to say, we are going to tell this new story. It's going to be related to the old book, uh, but it's going to be our story, and we're going to tell our story as well as we possibly can. And I think that the most successful movie adaptations do precisely that. Well, that David, that's, a, you have, that's actually a great, great segue into the question I'm about to ask David. So rather than letting oh, him comment on what you just said, we're just going to move on. Uh-huh. Um, every time there's an adaptation of a movie, especially a, a, a book, rather, uh, especially a book that's important to nerd culture, like uh, Lord of the Rings, <laughs> there's a lot of internet hand-wringing about uh, it not hewing close enough to the plot of the book. So I remember when Lord of the Rings came out, there, there was a certain subset of people who were upset that Tom Bombadil did not appear in the movie, which I found one of the great strengths of the movie, that Tom Bombadil did not appear in the movie. Because Tom Bombadil is an insufferable character and an insufferable scene, and the movie was better for not having him. I suspect you disagree with me. I suspect you are one of those internet nerds wringing your hands about uh, not, not hewing close enough to the book. Am I right, David? I, d I don't have uh, hard evidence for your uh, for, for thinking... You feel that way. By the way, I was a Tom Bombadil protester. Were you yeah, really? I, I'm, I was. Yeah. I wanted Tom yeah. to be in there. Well, I, I've got I, it I'm all gonna, backwards. Yeah, I, I'm going to forgive your lapse of judgment uh, <laughs> with, regarding Tom Bombadil, Michael, um, but only because I know the mitigating circumstance that you have no soul. So <laughs> that, that is true. If, so, if by you soul know, you, you mean tolerance it. for uh, ancient British myth. Well, given that I, I don't know of any ancient British myths about Tom Bombadil, um, you know, fair enough. Uh, but I, 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 well, regarding Tom Bombadil, I always knew in my heart of hearts that he would be really, really, really difficult to do on film. Mm -hmm. You know, I, 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 I. I I sighed regretfully at the absence of Tom Bombadil, but understood. Um, I was completely baffled by the fact that they skipped Fog on the Barrow Downs with the Barrow Whites. Mm -hmm. um, because that that is, is, to my mind, one of the most amazing scenes from, uh, from the Fellowship of the Rings. Uh, and... I, it 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 baffled me that they that they would skip that, probably because they couldn't figure out a way to do it without including Tom Bombadil, but you know, <laughs> fair enough. Um, I I don't I you know back but to 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 the to the question at hand, um, is this a real problem? Is it just the, the teeth gnashing of internet nerds? I don't know if I don't I don't know if this is your either of you, either of you guys have had this experience. But I remember one of the, as a you know, as a, a kid, I'm a, I'm a little boy, and I love my books, and that became a defining a, a defining factor for me. And one of the ways in which that love of books manifested is that when a book, when a movie came out that was based on a book that I love, I noticed all the ways that it was different, and it really bothered me. And of course, I've, I've you know I've learned how to emote differently about that. You know, <laughs> um, it doesn't simply offend me 
always as it used to. Um, but I've also noticed that that that's that's the way it is. You know, I've 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 noticed my siblings doing it. I've noticed, um, you know, whenever I, I've talked to, uh, you know, middle schoolers, high schoolers, you know, even even some of my own students, and the the topic of their favorite book comes up, and if that book was made into a movie, you know, here comes the rant about all the things they got wrong in the movie. All, all the often minor unimportant things they left out to make a non eight hour movie. Mm-hmm. But I, I think it's, it, I think it's, you know, part of, part of that discontent is, is a feature of, is a feature of a love of books. I think we, I think we, you know, we all, all, all the book lovers go through that stage. Some of us don't leave it. <laughs> um, and some of us, ne- some of us will never leave it for certain things because you know they're 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 just they're just too precious. Um, so I, I I don't think it's just a teeth gnashing internet nerd thing. Um, I think it preceded that. And you know the thing that I'm going to point to is the fact that uh, there were people doing that as far back as um, Sherlock Holmes fandom in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, there has been since the early 1900s when the Holmes stories were in the Strand magazines, there has been a cadre of, of people who religiously studied the Sherlock Holmes canon, um, who, you know, knew, knew the, knew the inconsistencies between story stories and had done this kind of amazing church fathers, harmony of the gospel style thing in which they explained away (laughs) the inconsistencies. And these were the people who were very upset when, uh, in the 1900s, the first Sherlock Holmes stage play uh, was done and Sherlock Holmes was given a romantic uh, a romantic interest who was based on the Irene Adler character. So, you know, hat tip to the new Sherlock Holmes film, or, or the, or actually the, the, the first new Sherlock Holmes film with, with uh, Robert Downey Jr. in it, in which you have this, you know, sort of romantic interest with the Irene Adler character. That's something that goes back to the first stage production of Sherlock Holmes. And the Sherlock Holmes nerds were peeved with that too. <laughs> Interestingly enough, Conan Doyle wasn't because he didn't care. <laughs> right, right, <laughs> right. And one, he he didn't want to be remembered as the author of Sherlock Holmes, or primarily as the author of Sherlock Holmes, anyway. From my understanding, no, 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 no. Yeah, there were many, many other as novels. The guy who discovered the fairies, or whatever. Well, <laughs> he would. He he wanted to be remembered as the guy who, uh, who finally convinced the world that the dead could speak. Mm-hmm. But but I mean, what what responsibility does a film adaptation have to follow the plot of the original book? Well, uh, I think it has the simple kind of golden rule responsibility. You know, if you've if you've because claiming that you're that you're making a movie of the book means that the people who love the book are going to be interested. All right, you, you don't make a movie out of a book that has no audience. Right, right. All right. And so there are already people who love it and you're going to bring the thing they love to the screen. 
And to me, it just seems like a simple courtesy that you should want to bring to the screen the things that people actually love about it. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's why there, there are some adaptations that are very different from, you know, from, from the, the book version. Um, I don't know if you guys have ever read any of the, any of the James Bond novels. Yeah, I have. Okay. How different are they from the films? Wildly different. Wildly even his, different. Even his drink is different. Yeah. Yeah. Wildly different. But much less I, racist. <laughs> but in in the, well, but in the in the digging around that I've done, uh-huh. I don't think anybody who read the novels cared. No, no. Because those what, aren't what the sort they, of novels you take seriously either. Well, but, you know, but I think my my I think my point holds because what what they loved in the novels did translate to the films. Yeah, yes, stories yes. were different, but what they loved in the novels translated. Right. And that 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 I think is is going to be, you know, that that's 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 going to be what I ask of filmmakers. Mm-hmm. If you're going to do some kind of twist on the story, let people know. Right. You know, but otherwise you know, try to make sure that what shows up on the screen is what people loved in the book. Yeah, mm-hmm. You know, I'm not going to be, I'm not going to be more theoretical than that. Just golden rule, man. <laughs> Nathan, <clears throat> do you have anything st- to add to that? I mean, I, I like all the things that David just said about it. You know, beyond that, all I would add uh, is that, I mean, just an extension of what I was saying earlier is that, you know, the best ones are the ones that really take responsibility for it and make it their own thing. Mm. So, I mean, if you're going to make an adaptation, make it your adaptation, take responsibility for it and, you know, really put it out there that, okay, this is an artistic retelling of what's going on, right? You know, so, you know, just to to offer an entirely absurd uh, additional example, you know, no one complains that Virgil got the details of the Odyssey wrong, right? You know, because I, that that is Virgil's poem. You know, uh, the, you know. Now people complain about all sorts of things about the Aeneid, uh, but one of them is not that. Oh my gosh, you know that totally didn't happen in Homer, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got You end up having to take the movie on its own terms. It's something separate yeah, from the book. Yeah. But mm-hmm. a movie can help you to do that, right? Right. I mean, there are things that a filmmaker can do, both in the filmmaking and in the promotion, that will let you know that this is our story. Uh, we are in gratitude to the original, but we are not simply reproducing the original. Well, let's end by talking about people who do that, people who get it right. Uh, what, are, what are some of the best movie adaptations of great books? And Nathan, we'll start with you this time. All right, I've got two of them, uh, and I feel like I'm cheating on both of them, but that's what I do. Uh, the first one is the DreamWorks picture, Prince of Egypt. Uh, mm. It is a an adaptation of the Moses story, uh, and it takes some wild liberties. The most prominent and the one that is most central to its plot is the fact that instead of Pharaoh being this uh, quasi-demonic, impersonal figure... Uh, Pharaoh becomes a brother figure to Moses. Uh, And so the central tension of the plot is not the clash of gods as it is in the text of Exodus, the true god Adonai versus the false god Pharaoh, Uh, but it is two brothers, both of whom find themselves called to 
a nationalist destiny, both of whom are suffering because history is going its course and tearing them apart personally. And I mean, it is just an immensely moving film. The music is wonderful. Uh, and I mean, it is by far my favorite Bible movie. Uh, it is just extraordinarily well done. I like that movie uh, too. Yeah, yeah. And I mean, it's one that I show to the teens at church all the time. We talk about, you know, the strong departures that it makes from the text of Exodus. And we talk about how, you know, this is art. You know, this is what this filmmaker, this filmmaking team has done. They have turned this into uh, two star-crossed brothers, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, I know. Awful pun. Awful pun. But uh, the other one that I would point to, uh, and like I said, I'm cheating terribly, uh, is if you think of the history of the fall of the Roman Republic as a text in some sort, uh, HBO's series Rome is a great retelling of it. And again, it's not trying to imitate Livy. It's not trying to imitate Suetonius. Uh, what it is doing is telling this story. Uh, it's helped along by the fact that Chiara and Hines is just the most convincing, charismatic, and irresistible Caesar who has ever graced the screen. Uh, I mean, th th there's a definite drop-off between season one and season two. It's not because of the writing or what any of the other actors do. It's just that Caesar is not on screen anymore. So uh, <laughs> I thought that show was mostly a nudity delivery system, Nathan. You know, it, it has all of the HBO self-indulgence. It's, you know, hey, we're not on basic cable, so we're going to show butts and boobs and lots of cuss words. Uh, but as far as the characters go, it's hard to beat. So it's one of those things I, you know, I am torn about it and certainly I can't recommend it to any of my manual students until after they graduate. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I would say that as far as making an adaptation of the history of Rome, I can't think of any better. What do All you right. got? Yeah, David. Um, well, I think I'll, I'll, I'll follow your lead, Nathan, and I'll cite two as well. Go for it. Uh, uh, I tried to play a little bit closer to the rules, and if I couldn't identify a distinct book, I wouldn't, um, wouldn't, uh, invoke it. Um, the, the first is, uh, Blade Runner. Ah. Um, based on Philip K. Dick's Do Dream, uh, Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Um... I, I think it's 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 just absolutely brilliant. Um, the problem is I've never read Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep. <laughs> rather so different I, from the movie. So so I don't know, but I'm going to let Philip K. Dick uh, actually speak for me. This is from a letter that he wrote to the production company uh, in 1981, uh, and in which. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm going to sort of gloss through there, uh, and, and he says, Since I've been writing and selling science fiction works for 30 years, this is a matter of some importance to me. In all candor, I must say that our field has gradually and steadily been deteriorating for the last few years. Nothing that we have done individually or collectively matches Blade Runner. And he concludes with... Uh, my life and creative work are justified and completed by Blade Runner. Nice. Okay. So this is, this is the author of the book saying, 
this is the most amazing thing. Um, it's not my book, but I am so great. I am so grateful that my book helped give birth to it. And I, I think that's probably a good uh, a good fusion of some of the things that we've been saying, Nathan. Um, Blade Runner isn't do androids dream of electric sheep, but yeah. do androids dream of electric sheep made Blade Runner possible? And Philip G- Philip K. Dick was 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 very proud of having been part of making making that movie possible by writing the book. Sure, right. you ought to read the book, um, David. It's really good. Yeah, I mean it's it's one of it's 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 on my to do list. <laughs> um, the other is the this is this has been in the past few years. Um, and I think it was, I, it didn't get a theatrical release. I think it's made for TV. Um, if, if you guys have seen any of the uh, Poirot adaptations uh, with David Suchet, um, I think the BBC puts them out. Oh, okay. Um, they're, they're all amazing. I'm a huge Agatha Christie fan. But the one, the one that really stands out as just a phenomenal film that takes the novel and adds depth to it that that I didn't cry over the novel uh, Murder on the Orient Express. All right, it's it's an it's it's an Agatha Christie murder mystery. All right, it's got <laughs> clues and suspects, and you try to solve it before the last chapter when Poirot does it for you. Mm-hmm. All right. The movie is fantastically affecting um, because the, the the story ends up becoming an opportunity f- uh, for uh, for the, the char- for us to watch the character of Hercule Poirot meditate on his role in justice happening hmm. and how conflicted he is about that when he runs into a murder that was committed for. Reasons that he doesn't see as justifiable, but at least as sympathetic. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't want to give too much away, but the 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 film is fantastic, and I was haunted about it. I was haunted by it for at least a couple of weeks. My mind just kept going back to it again and again, um, in a way that, frankly, my imagination never did to the book. Mm-hmm. It was a good book. I enjoyed it. But when it was done, it was done. I was like, all right, well, now on to the next of the massive list of books Agatha Christie wrote. <laughs> right. right. But that movie stuck with me. So, um, and not, not, the old, not the old version, okay? Uh, there, there was an old version that had everyone in Hollywood in it. Not that <laughs> one. Uh, the one done in the last few years uh, starring David Suchet. And I, I assume it's Suchet. It looks like S-U-C-H-E-T. I've never heard anyone pronounce it. It looks okay. French, so I'm going to say Suchet. There you go. Well, uh, the one I wanted to mention is the film adaptation of To Kill a Mockingbird, which is probably not a great book, but it is a very good book. Mm-hmm. It's a great book when you're in ninth grade. <laughs> um, the movie, though, is perfect. It's, it, it is perfectly cast, it's perfectly directed, it's perfectly acted. It also stays very, very close to the plot of the book. I think there's a few things they take out, but by and large, um, by and large, it stays faithful. Gregory Peck is Atticus Finch. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, I'm not sure there has been a more perfectly cast part in the history of cinema. 
than uh, Gregory mm. Peck as Atticus Finch. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, this is Robert Duvall making up for The Scarlet Letter, I guess 40 <laughs> years in advance. Uh, I believe it's his first role. Is that is that right? His, Boo Redley that might be true. I, I, I don't know. But uh, th- that movie is as good an adaptation as I think you're ever going to see. Certainly as good a straight adaptation as you're ever going to see. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, in fact, it becomes very difficult to separate the book from the movie after you've seen the movie. Yeah. Mm. Well, uh, that's it for this season. Oh, actually, real qu- real quick story, Michael, and I, I I just think you'd get a kick out of this. Okay. But uh, in my advanced rhetoric class, one of my students wrote a paper uh, talking about to kill a mockingbird as a commentary on Plato's Gorgias, the the re- the rhetorician that brings the truth to the people against their pleasure. That makes sense. I, I never thought of it that way, but yeah, I didn't either. But you know, all, all of a sudden, the name Atticus means something different to me. Right. <laughs> awesome. Well, that is it for this season of the Christian Humanist Podcast. We will be doing our normal summer episodes, one per month, June, July, and August. Although we may be back in, we should be back at the end of August, so maybe it's just right, June so, and July. Yeah, it's usually June and July. Well, that means we know exactly what we're doing. In July, we'll be talking about Nathan Gilmore's dissertation. Woohoo! Woohoo! What will we be doing in June? Nathan. Uh, in, Jul- in June, we're going to have uh, two special guests on for an interview show. Their names are Michael Farmer and David Grubbs. And <laughs> I'm going to be interviewing them about the transition from grad school to faculty. And we'll try not to say anything that will get us fired. Yeah, I'm not going to ask you any <laughs> questions that will get you fired. I've already promised you guys this multiple times. You have so little faith in me. I have <laughs> little faith in I- myself. <laughs> I don't know why you're tre- so trepidatious, Michael. You never say anything that would get you fired. <laughs> I do have ultimate veto power, right? Because I edit the show. Yeah, you do. You do. You have the yeah, yeah. What, what, whatever, whatever shows up that people can hear that you put, you put that there. That's yeah, true. Yeah. <laughs> Except today, when there will be absolutely no editing because uh, we're recording this the day it goes out. So. All right. This is this is the first show our listeners will ever hear that I haven't monkeyed with. Hmm. There Not you sure go. how I feel about that. <laughs> anyway, um, until June, you can always email us at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com. You can visit our website, which is christianhumanist.org. Uh, for David Grubbs, for Nathan Gilmore, this is Michael Farmer saying, let your sins be strong and let your faith be strong. The credits roll, the camera pans, and in the mist our hero stands. He starts to speak, then folds his hands in prayer. An awkward pause, then what's my line? There's nothing left to say this time. And what would you say to a bad guy who's not there?
choice. 